we've been trying to understand the end time events surrounding resurrection and the rapture. And before we get started this week, I just want to make one quick comment on that. And that is, we're talking about timing here and not content. I think that within the various denominations of Christianity, there is widespread agreement as to the events that will occur. There definitely will be a rapture. There is going to be resurrection. There is going to be a marriage of the Lamb. The the only differences that we've got is when is this are these events going to happen and which events are going to happen together, which events are going to be separated by you know many years. And towards that end, I'm giving you my view of the timing, but it's it's really just that it's it's my view of the timing if if scripture was all that specific about timing there wouldn't be all this disagreement so from that i would i take comfort in the fact that there is room for interpretation and that what god wants us to understand is the events that will occur. An example that I would give is in the prophecies of Daniel. If we lived back in the time of Daniel, we would have no clue what God was talking about. There were Daniel himself was utterly confused by the visions and prophecies that God showed him. But we who have lived through history and have seen so many of those prophecies fulfilled to the letter... We can really understand what God meant, who these uh, kingdoms were that he was referring to. And so I, will th- I think it will be like that as we approach closer and closer to the time of the end. That as the events begin to transpire, God has given us enough information that we know what to expect next. So as it becomes more and more important, it will also become clearer and clearer to us what the timing will be. Towards that end, I have prepared for you a handout that we're not going to review in class, uh, but that is going to be posted on the web. And it is a handout titled The End Times Worksheet. And I've got on there kind of a, a subtitle of what we've learned so far, because this little worksheet just outlines the major events, for example, the end times, the, the tribulation will start with the covenant of that the Antichrist makes with the many. We move on into the Great Tribulation. We then move to the Second Coming of Christ, the Battle of Armageddon, the Day of the Lord. Move Then move on into the period in between that and the uh, thousand-year millennial reign, etc., etc. So it's got these major categories of events kind of in sequence for you. And then next to each one of them are some bullet points of particular things that happen during that segment of time. And what's very helpful to you there is in addition to telling you, you know, the, the event that will happen, for example, the gospel will, will be preached in the whole world during, as a testimony to the nations during the general, the great tribulation. So that's like a bullet point within the great tribulation. I also give you the scripture reference for that event. So you can begin to take these, not only to review them, and to use as a reference to to remember where in the Bible it said such and such. But you can also begin to take these pieces and rearrange them according to your own interpretation and understanding of these scriptures. And lastly, I want to say that we're going to take a break for three weeks. We're going to reconvene the first Wednesday in August. We're going to take a little summer break here. And I look forward to seeing you the first Wednesday in August. And we will pick up at the end of chapter 3 of Revelation and go on into chapter chapter 4. Last week we worked on the day of the Lord and it was all blood and guts and gore. So this week we're going to completely switch gears and work on the marriage of the Lamb. This is a major theme at the end of Revelation and is... It's important to understand the sequence of events of the marriage of the Lamb to have a framework within which to fit the things that happened at happen at the very end times. So we're going to look first at 
the traditions associated with a marriage ceremony in the Jewish tradition, especially around the time of Christ. And we're going to then go back and read the pertinent parts of Revelation with some support from the rest of Scripture that talk about the whole set of events surrounding the marriage of God's people to Jesus Christ, the the Lamb of God. And we're going to then, within that, talk about resurrection and the rapture because it's within that context that we can further understand the timing of these events. So first, let's start out with what a Jewish wedding ceremony would, might look like back in the time of Christ before and, and really for many, uh, many, many hundreds of years after that. The first thing that would happen is the father of the groom would arrange for the bride. And this very often occurred when the bride and the groom were just children. And it was really not unusual at all for the bride and the groom to meet for the very first time on their wedding day when their marriage had been arranged long, long ago when they were little kids. And what would happen is the father of the groom would identify the bride and then go and pay the bride price. From that point forward, that little girl was set apart as the wife to be married to the groom. After that would be a period of preparation. Now, if the you know bride and groom were already adults, this period of preparation might only last a year. It was it was always at least a year, uh, in part because you want to make sure that bride is not pregnant. But but the but it very often lasted a much longer time, and during that time, the groom is also preparing. Because in order to be married, he has to be able to support a household. So either he's got to establish a household of his own, or he has to come into his own inheritance. And once the groom was ready to get married, had a way to support his wife, had prepared a home for her, then he would come to fetch the bride. That's, it seems to be kind of a technical term, to fetch the bride, and take her from her father's house, from her, from her own home, to the home that he has prepared for her. At that point, the wedding ceremony would occur, usually attended only by a few guests, a few honored guests and uh, witnesses, and then immediately after the wedding, there would be a huge wedding feast to which everybody in town was invited, and it could last, this feast could last days, seven, up to seven days. So the first thing we want to do is look back at the arrangement of our marriage. God the Father would be the one arranging the marriage of his son. And the first thing that happens is he identifies the bride. And the bride is set apart to be his wife. Now one question we have to answer for ourselves is, does the bride of Christ, which as Christians we know clearly includes the church, does it also include the Jews? who are going to be redeemed at the day of the Lord. doesn't include the Old Testament saints. Or are there two brides? Is Israel the bride of the Father and the church the bride of Christ? We, we need to keep these questions in mind as we look through Scripture. My personal bias and belief, what I, I think I see in Scripture, is that Jew and Gentile share together in the heritage in the promise of God, and it is the the bride and Christ is composed of both Jew and Gentile. Therefore, it is the chosen people as well as the as well as the church. They we become one people in Christ. And let's you know let's look back at some of the scripture that talks about this and why I might think that. The first scripture we want to look at is Deuteronomy seven six. This is a scripture where one of many scriptures where God the Father sets apart Israel as his chosen people, as to be his wife. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, obviously, there's tons and tons and tons of other scriptures to that effect, but that's a good representative one. Then... 
we look at Ezekiel 16.8 where he becomes a husband to this wife. Then I passed by you and saw you and behold you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. The Old Testament is filled with imagery of Israel as the wife, okay, the chosen wife of God. But I want you to notice also in this next passage, Jeremiah 3.19, where the metaphors of father and son get mixed, okay? And you'll find that all throughout Scripture, it, it's, it, the, the father and the son image get kind of jumbled up together. So it's not a, a real clear distinction, which makes sense if, from our point of view, this is a triune God, correct? So look at Jeremiah 3.19. Then I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, You shall call me my father and shall not turn away from following me. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So in that one passage you can see reference to the the relationship with the son, relationship with the father as a father, and the relationship with God as a husband. Okay, all in that you know, one little passage there. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one continues about how Israel broke that marriage covenant, but it adds the promise of the Lord, which, which you see throughout Scripture, where he says, you know what, I know you have been an absolute whore, but I will take you back and make you clean. Here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's a a new marriage covenant he's talking about. With the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. So um, clearly he saw that first covenant as a marriage covenant also. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So here comes the new covenant. Okay. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 4 through 8. Here the Lord gets very specific about it being a marriage covenant and the fact that he's going to forgive and renew those marriage vows. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. And then it talks about Jerusalem being recreated to be a new Jerusalem to be the bride of Christ. Isaiah 62.1 For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Now look there, he's talking about, he uses the word Zion and Jerusalem, which are used, you know, interchangeably in scripture. And we're talking about also his whole people, that that city is more than just a city to God. It is representative of his people. Okay. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. He's talking about the the new Jerusalem. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. 
You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Obviously, references to the end times because that's certainly not what you could call Jerusalem now, right? So here the Lord's talking about the new Jerusalem he's going to create. So it makes perfect sense that in the New Testament, the bride of Christ is referred to both ways. The bride of Christ is referred to as the church, but it is also referred to as the new Jerusalem. And that, to me, is a very strong indication that both the Jews and the Gentiles share in this promise of God. That makes sense to me from God's intention for the Jews from the beginning. Okay. They have been his chosen people. We, we were the ones that got grafted in, not the other way around. I wanted to pick out a couple of places in the New Testament where you could see the Bride of Christ referred to both as the church and as the New Jerusalem. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul's speaking. And he's speaking to a new church, to the Christians at Corinth. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And then look at Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, for there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So now you want to look at the second step. First step, remember, was the father of the groom identifies the bride. The second thing he does is pay the bride price. And as Christians, we're all familiar with what that bride price was. It was definitely the the offering of Christ himself. I believe it was a two-part price because I believe it was... Christ's crucifixion and the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that that groom was coming back. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she would be holy and blameless. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That whole passage wasn't about marriage. That whole passage was about Christ and the church. Was what, you know, it, it, it had application. Marriage was the example he was giving. But the, the point of that passage was that we understand the relationship of Christ with the church. And then look at Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So then we get to the next step in the marriage tradition, which is fetching the bride. This is the step where 
in right now. We're, we're waiting to be fetched. We are preparing ourselves. During this period, the bride prepares herself to become a wife. Everybody knows the scripture in John 14 where Christ promised that when he left, what was he going to go do? He, he was preparing a place for us because he's the groom. He has to go prepare a place for us to live. And once the bride is completely prepared, the groom comes for her. Revelation is where we would go or where I suggest going to see the exact sequence of events that happens when Christ comes for the, for the bride. First thing is there's a statement that the time for the marriage of the Lamb has arrived. Okay, It says, all right, guys, this is it. We're ready to start. The next thing is that the bride must be ready. And, and we see a spiritual picture of the bride in Revelation where she is clothed in her wedding gown. She is radiant. She has been cleansed and made holy. What's very interesting is what she's clothed in. She's clothed in a, a fine linen, bright and clean. Look at Revelation 19.7 to see what it says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That bride is made holy by the, by the groom. Okay, She is made holy by Christ but her wedding dress are the righteous acts of us, of all the saints. And I want to point out right here that a lot of people take that, that this verse in Revelation 19, which is at the very beginning of the whole sequence of, of marriage-related events in, in Revelation, many people take that verse to mean that the marriage has already occurred. And that is Certainly a one valid viewpoint. That's not the viewpoint I take. I take that this verse to mean where it, the time has come and now I'm going to tell you how it happens. Then he said to me, this is verse 9, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. And there is the reference to the, mar- to the marriage supper that happens after the marriage ceremony. Okay, And that's another reason people believe that since he's talking about the marriage supper, therefore the whole wedding must have already taken place. I think he's just introducing the topic here. Okay. So then, now we're going to start going serially through Revelation. So if you notice these references, we finished off at, at Revelation 19 verse 10. The very next verse, the groom arrives. And here's the description of the groom. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And it goes on, we read this last week, to describe Jesus the warrior with all the armies of heaven behind him and emblazoned on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the groom. Now, according to 1 Thessalonians 4... This is the point where the dead are resurrected and the believers who have survived on earth are raptured to meet the Lord in the air. This occurs according to um, both Thessalonians and Corinthians at the last trumpet. Let's take a quick look at that. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And now here's where we want to start counting. One, two, three. We want to start counting the events and getting them in our heads. For the Lord himself, number one, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. That's number one. That's what happens first. Number two, the dead in Christ will rise first. And number three, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, this is like the classic rapture passage. But look at 
another passage, 1 Corinthians 15:51, that has the same events, 1, 2, and 3, in order, but gives us a little bit more information. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the number one, for the trumpet will sound. Okay. Remember, number one was Jesus comes from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So they're very consistent. So that's number one. We, all, the only piece of information that got added here was it was the last trumpet. Okay. Number two, the dead will be raised imperishable. Well, that fits with the previous passage that told us the dead will be raised. The only information it added was that they will at that point get their imperishable bodies. And number three, we will all be changed. There's the rapture again, just like it was in the previous verse. Let's focus on the trumpet for a minute. In Revelation, there are seven trumpets described at the end time. The sixth trumpet, and it really just talks about the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. I heard a voice from from heaven uh, release four angels that had been prepared to kill a third of mankind. Those angels then released this army of horsemen. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And the rest of mankind, and it talks all about, it gives at that point a spiritual picture of what those horsemen looked like. That's pretty awful. Well, that's the sixth trumpet. The seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, heralds the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Look what the second Seventh trumpet says in Revelation 11:15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Okay. So there in the sixth and the seventh trumpets, you have the whole picture of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ to begin to establish the, king, the kingdom that will last forever. Now, to me, when I read that, and it's talking about the last trumpet in Corinthians and Thessalonians, I'm equating that to the last trumpet talked about in Revelation. Okay, I think that's a significant trumpet. Many people... Do not interpret it that way. And it's certainly open to interpretation. Uh, you know, a number of, in order to believe that the rapture happens before all of this, you have to believe there must have been some, uh, some other trumpet. Okay. So you can believe that. It's, it's just whatever, however you fit these pieces together. So now let's go back and look at, uh, at one, two, and three at those events and look at some context in Scripture. The first thing that happens, remember, is Jesus comes at that last trumpet with a shout and the archangel. The, it says specifically that the armies of heaven are with him. We want to look at who's in those armies of heaven. Okay? Because one of the big points is, if we were raptured before all this happened, the armies of heaven would include the saints. Because they would have been in heaven and would be coming with him. Right? On the other hand... If the rapture occurs at this point, the only people that are going to be in those armies are the angels at that point. And then we join them in the air. Okay? So let's, let's take a look at that. What does it say? Look at Matthew 16:27, uh, And I gave you the parallel verse in Luke 9:26. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then repay every man according to his deeds. Uh, Truly, truly, some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, That in itself is a very confusing little statement. But but, um, the point that I'm trying to make here is here's a place where it says Christ is coming 
with his angels. Okay, let's look at another one. Matthew 24, 35 and 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, why would he list the angels of heaven and the Son as important people to know this hour? Well, because they're the ones being there. Okay? They're the ones who ought to know when this hour is. And Jesus says, you know, they don't, the people who are going to do it don't even know. Only the Father knows when this hour is. Look at Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Mark 8.37, whoever is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. John 1.50, this is a, a 1.51, this is the calling of the disciple Nathaniel. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now that one may, may refer to some other event, but I'm assuming that it's referring to the second coming, okay, where the angels are there. And then 2 Thessalonians 1.6, where it promises God is going to take vengeance on those who have afflicted you. And then it says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, all of that said, angels, Jesus, angels, Jesus, Jesus, angels. Okay? Not one word in there about the saints. Well, that doesn't mean the saints aren't going to be in the picture. It just means, as far as I'm concerned, they enter shortly thereafter. Let's look at the passages that talk about the saints and how they get into the picture. Look at Matthew 24, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky... And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 talks about that the saints of Christ, that those early Christians will be present in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. 1 Thessalonians 3:12 and 13, where again Paul is talking to the Thessalonians saying, you know, be love one another, be kind, try to allow God to make you holy in your actions and deeds towards each other. So that you can stand without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all our saints. So clearly the saints are, are going to be there at the coming, right? The first verse we looked at said, he's coming, he's got his angels, the angels are going to go gather all his elect. Okay, let's look at another place where it talks about this. Second Thessalonians 1, 6. Um, this is the same one that we read in the earlier passage about the angels. And I highlighted that for you where it says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in, fl- in flaming fire. But then it goes on at the end of that verse to talk about this is the time when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Go on to Second Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Where he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, again, to me that's saying he's coming, we're being gathered to him. That's very consistent with all of those other scriptures about, you know, the, past, the rapture and the resurrections. And the last one is in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Where it says, you know what, when Christ comes this next time... His coming is not going to be about sin. It's not going to be about sin. He already came and dealt with sin. This time, it's going to be about salvation. To bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And to me, I'm focusing on that phrase, we are waiting for him to come. Okay, to come get us at this point. Now, that is how I put those pieces together. That's why I believe what I believe. 
obviously you can go through and say you know just as easily probably that that you know he's talking about an earlier rapture and therefore he's bringing the saints with him now I just want you to be aware that there's more than one view here this is all recapped also in Revelation 17 that does throughout Revelation just like the rest of the Bible you find lots of stories and telling of the same event over and over but from a different perspective in, in Revelation 17:12, it talks about the battle of Armageddon and it puts it in the context of ten kings that will arise which is you know eerily reminiscent of some stuff we studied in Daniel isn't it okay the ten kings which you saw, ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, who is the Antichrist, for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the Antichrist. These will wage war against the Lamb. Okay, that's the battle of Armageddon. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's exactly what he had emblazoned on his thigh at that battle and those who are with him are called the called the chosen and the faithful so this is like an overview of what happens now if we go back to Revelation chapter 19 and pick up where we left off with Jesus the groom appearing as a mighty warrior let's pick up where we left off in that, in that passage and look at some of the details about what happens that day first thing that happens is the Antichrist is judged, defeated, and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we know from our study in Daniel that the saints are present for that judgment because the judgment of the Antichrist is between the Antichrist and the saints. God judges between the Antichrist and the saints. Look at what it says. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. That was the call we saw in the Old Testament, the call of the birds to the battlefield of Armageddon. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay. So that's the end of chapter 19. And so the very next thing that happens is in chapter 20. And it talks about at this point, all of this is happening, you know, all at the same time, Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years and not allowed to operate on earth. And then John sees the vision of all of those who were resurrected. What's very interesting is the way, when we read this, is look for the way that John sees them. Because there is a certain, there are people in this picture that John describes who are already resurrected. Okay? He, he, it's, it's a very interesting passage. Look at it. Revelation 20, verse 1. The, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. We studied the abyss in an earlier um, class. This is not the lake of fire. This is the... Possibly the deepest level of Hades or possibly a separate place. But it is a place that has been in existence for fallen angels and fallen spirits. Okay, so Satan is bound, thrown in there for a thousand years. Now listen what happens next. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Doesn't say who they and them is at that point. And... I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. 
And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So let's talk about this first resurrection. This is an interesting point. Obviously, the they and the those who were sitting on those thrones were already resurrected. Okay. We know for a fact, because he gave us a great big description here, that the tribulation martyrs are resurrected and are part of the first resurrection. What we don't have is the time frame of the first resurrection. It doesn't exactly say when it started. It just, it's kind of open-ended on the start point because there were the they's in the picture that were already resurrected. Yes, ma'am. Well, when Christ visited with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, were they not already resurrected? I, I don't believe. The question was in, at the Transfiguration when, when um, Christ visited with Elijah and Moses, were they already resurrected? That's a great question. And I don't think that they were. And most people who will interpret the scripture will tell you that they were not. Because generally speaking, people who believe that the rapture occurs early and that it's only the, the <coughs> saints of the church, of, of, of the Christians, believe the Old Testament saints are not resurrected till the great white throne judgment at the very end. Um, it, Elijah went up in a chariot. Right. And nobody saw Moses die. That's right. That's right. So, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question. And there's a lot of these questions. I am just simply not going to know the answer because it's not specific in Scripture. <gasps> All right, quit now. <laughs> I'm telling you everything I do know, everything I can put together and read. Um, but, but I believe, and I'm going to talk, talk here in a minute about, about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and where I think that fits. But I don't think at the Transfiguration they were resurrected. All right, so, so the point here, did you have a question? No. Oh, okay. The point here is that, that there's this open-ended part. So many people believe that the, the rapture and the resurrection of the Christian church could conceivably have, have happened thousands of years ago, okay, at this point. That we, if you believe in an early rapture, you believe that could happen this minute while we're sitting in this room. Okay? And then it could be another 3,000 years before Christ comes the second time. Okay? In order for that to make any sense, you have to believe that first resurrection starts at whatever time that rapture happened. Okay? And continues at the second coming. I can see that you could see that, but I kind of think that they're happening a lot closer together is my point. Okay. So I'm thinking that this whole passage in Revelation that talks about the first resurrection is talking about the resurrection of the saints of the church. It's talking about, I think, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Um, I think it's talking about the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. I think they're pulled out as a separate group because they have a separate role to play in the judgments that occur at that point. Um, but, but I think there, is, there are two resurrections, the first one and the second one, that are talked about in Revelation. Okay. All right, so let's look at how, who are the those and the they's that are sitting on those thrones. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more the matters of this life? Here is, this is in a whole passage where Paul is railing at the Corinthians because they kept suing each other in small claims court. And, and, and he said, you know, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge 
men and angels. Can't you even get it straight over the boundary lines in your property here on earth? That place, and also there's another one I did not put in there. But in Luke, if you want to jot this down, Luke 22, verses 28 and 29. Christ specifically tells his apostles, his disciples, that they will judge also. Okay, So we know that the saints are the ones who are judging. And therefore we know who the they and the those are that are sitting on those thrones that have, already, that have been resurrected. Okay. So when the, where did I get the Old Testament saints out of all of that? Where I got that was back in the passage in Matthew, and there's an, I'm, I think I've got it here again for you in, in Mark, Mark's version of the same teaching in Mark 13:24. I believe that the Old Testament saints are resurrected at this point because of these passages. Look what it says. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in heavens will be shaken. We know that all happens at the Battle of Armageddon. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then, then, okay, first he comes, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth, to the farthest end of heaven. couple of points to look at there. Elect, that word is the word for chosen. He is pulling together the chosen people. That includes us. That includes the Jews, as far as I'm concerned. He's gathering them from earth, those who are still living. And he's gathering them from heaven, the farthest end of heaven. That's why I think the Old Testament saints get resurrected here. Also, just out of principle, it, I, my whole perspective on this is that Jews and Gentiles share the promise. So if the church is getting resurrected, the Jews are getting resurrected. Okay. Yeah. All the Jews are just the Messianic Jews. Well, that's a great question because I, I believe it's all the Jews. Because there is a passage, and I don't know if I put it in this lesson or not. Let me look real quick. Uh, and if I, if we'll get to it if I, if I don't. But anyway, the reason that I know that is because when g- the Jews are gathered physically on earth, and there is a great deal, a, a number of passages in the Old Testament that describe that event happening, it says specifically that he gathers the righteous and the unrighteous at that point and causes them to pa- pass under the rod, like a shepherd's, ro- shepherd's rod. To separate them out at that point. He says, I'm going to gather them all, but the ones that are unrighteous will not enter Jerusalem. Are you saying the unrighteous Jews? Yes, ma'am. So not all of them will go. Right, right. He will gather all of them to the judging place. Okay, he will gather them all, but not all of them will, will enter Israel and enter Jerusalem. And we looked at other references in earlier classes, remember, about a Jew is not a Jew except he is circumcised of heart. Okay? It's not the physical thing that God sees as being the chosen people. Okay? It's the circumcision of heart, which is another argument, in my mind, for Jews and Gentiles sharing in this. Okay? I think these are kind of, these go under the GT, the great truths of the Bible, okay? Um, that, that we share in all of these inheritances. Now, not the wicked Gentile dead are not resurrected at this point. Okay? God is gathering. Only people that he's resurrecting are the righteous ones. The ones on earth, Jew, you know, righteous or wicked that are Jews get gathered in. Okay, see that distinction there? Okay, so let's look at what happens. Christ and the resurrected or raptured saints rule the Gentile nations that are still out there, still living, still wicked, okay, rules them with a rod of iron. This is very interesting because we rarely think of the second coming in terms of their still being enemies. Somehow as Christians we've got it all jumbled up there in a mush at the end of time and we, and we think that when Christ comes everything stops everybody's happy everybody goes to heaven and wicked goes away well that's not what happens okay <laughs> it's wishful thinking <laughs> that's right 
Every knee shall bow. Absolutely. But let's look and see what it says. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now look at the Messianic prophecy prophecy in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 6. The Lord, that is God, says to my Lord, that is Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, we know what that is, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, when Christ comes, his enemies will still exist on earth. Absolutely, he will bring them into submission. Look at the next part. Verse 5, the Lord... Christ is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. We studied about the day of wrath last time. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. It goes on, and I don't know that I put in here what happens ultimately at the very end. um, Jesus brings, at the end of this thousand years, Jesus brings all dominion, authority, and power under him. That does not happen instantly on day one. That happens over this period of time as he's ruling these Gentiles. And he's bringing spiritual power and physical power, people power, you know, under him both. So it's, he's definitely ruling in the middle of enemies. And there's lots of scripture that talks about the fact that Jerusalem at that point is where Christ reigns from that it is a holy city and wicked, the wicked who do exist are not allowed in the gates. So all I can, can conclude from that is that they're still out there. Okay. So it, let's look at some of the, the part about Christ governing pers- personally from Mount Zion. Isaiah 2 verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Now if there's not good and bad, why is there judging and decisioning going on? Okay, He's, he's not... He's not judging the people. I mean, there is judgment of the people, but that this passage is not talking about judging the people. Are they good or are they bad? He's jud- rendering decisions between people who are having disputes. Okay. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, important point here. It doesn't say there's never again going to be a war because there is one more war after that. We find that in Revelation. But it says they're not going to train for war anymore. All men come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Isaiah 66:22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it will be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. I didn't put the passage in here, but you would find it in one of your earlier handouts. um, where it says, all, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow before me. It also talks about, in another past, similar passage, that if any family on earth does not come, any nation does not come annually or at the fixed times to worship the Lord, they will have drought in their land. So clearly there again, they have a choice. They don't have to come if they don't want to come, but they will have drought. Now, here is one of the places that refers to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the new heaven and the new earth, we know for a fact, happen at the great white throne judgment. It's specific in Revelation. It says the old heaven and earth flee away. The new heaven and the new earth come. 
Okay. However, we see reference to the new heaven and the new earth throughout the scriptures talking about this millennial kingdom, this thousand years. So right here is one of them. And it talks about the fact that God is creating this new heaven and earth. I don't know if that means he starts creating them right then or if, he, if they're created in his mind and they just come at the great white throne judgment. It's not very specific. But this passage is using them as a simile. Okay, It says, your longevity, Israel, will be like the longevity of the new heavens and new earth that I am creating. Okay, doesn't say that he created them there. It says he's using them as a simile. Then we get to the part where God, oh, here it is. Here's the passage where God judges the Jews, separating them between the righteous and the unrighteous. And it talks about, it says, let's see. Um, here we go. Look at verse 37. I will make you pass under the rod. This is Ezekiel 20, verse 37. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This is the new covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Okay, that's the passage I was looking for a minute ago. This whole millennial kingdom thing, the thousand years, will be a time of great blessing for Israel. That's what it's all about. That's another reason I think that the, the Old Testament saints are resurrected at that point. Because this whole period of time is about the blessing of Israel and the chosen people. For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth. And here another, another reference to the new heavens and new earth. Even though we know they don't actually, the old one doesn't flee away yet. Here he's talking about the new heavens and new earth as a, as a creation. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping, the sound of crying. And I think we looked in an earlier class. I think I told you the lifespan of man gets extended at that point, just like it was at the beginning of creation. In verse 20, no longer will there be in in Jerusalem an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Isn't that amazing? Then, look, there's still going to be marrying and bearing children. So we know that the righteous Jews who have been allowed to enter Israel, who have been gathered from all over the world and enter Israel, have not been raptured. That is, that is one distinction, okay, that the righteous Jews were not raptured, okay, because we know here they still have bodies. Look at what it says. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And here's my interpretation of this. I believe that this millennial kingdom is the point at which the Jews learn about Christ. In terms of knowledge and understanding, I think the bride of Christ, which includes the Jews, was prepared spiritually. I think these Jews were truly righteous. They knew God. Okay, you couldn't be righteous without knowing the Father, right? But here during this, during this millennial kingdom, I believe those righteous Jews find out who Christ is. And learn about him. And here's why I think that. I'm always going to back it up with scripture so that you can make your own decision. But here's why I think that. Look at Jeremiah 3.15. This is in the middle of a whole passage about this time. And it says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart 
who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not even come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. And then look at Ezekiel 39:28. The Lord says he's at that time going to pour the Holy Spirit out on Israel. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is what I think happens to the Jews during the millennial kingdom. It also goes on to say in Isaiah 61, 1 through 6, that the people of Israel will become priests and ministers of God. They'll have all the riches that previously had gone to the Gentiles. Okay, because I think the Jews are going to go through a terrible time during this great tribulation. Um, they're going to be enslaved. They're going to be hunted and persecuted. And, and it's, World War II is going to be nothing compared to the great tribulation for the Jews. But, but all of that turns around during the millennial kingdom and they enjoy the riches of the Gentiles. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, we're ready. The bride will have been fetched. Everybody knows Christ. We will have been separated between the righteous and the unrighteous, those who are on the, on the earth. And the stage is set for the marriage ceremony. Revelation 20 verses 7. And this is continuing the narrative that we started in Revelation. Where, okay, Satan was bound for a thousand years. We have the first resurrection. After the thousand years, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Well, that sounds just like Armageddon. But you know what? This is a thousand years later. Satan got released. Men come to war immediately. And look what happens. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's kind of like God said, you know what? I'm not messing with this anymore. Okay. Fire comes down and devours them. The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown, remember, a thousand years ago. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Immediately after that is the great white throne judgment, which we've read over and over in other classes. We're not going to read it again here. But the... It's the second resurrection. It's the resurrection when all the dead are resurrected, included, including the wicked dead, are resurrected at that point. Your judge, those whose names are found in the book of life, are allowed to live with Christ eternally. Those whose names are not in the book of life are thrown in the lake of fire for eternity, which is the second death. Also, the other books are opened, which are the books of your deeds. And every person stands and is judged According to their deeds. And, and that is a judgment of reward. You know, it's not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of what your reward is going to be. And then I believe this is where the marriage ceremony takes place. What's interesting is that there is not an actual description of the marriage ceremony in Revelation anywhere. The ceremony itself is not described. But we know from the Jewish tradition of marriage that the ceremony takes place immediately after the bride has been fetched. I mean, what are you going to do with her other than marry her, right? So, so at, at that point, after the fetching, I think it's a given that, that we are married at that point. And I think that's confirmed by the very next verse in Revelation. We're starting Revelation 21 here. Right after the great white throne judgment, the very next thing happens is the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The fact that it says first tells us there's only a first and a second, just like a first resurrection and a second resurrection. There's only two of these. There's only two heavens and earths. There's a first and a second. And here is where the first one passes away, and he sees for the first time the new heaven and the new earth. Now, they could have been created and held in readiness for the last thousand years. 
but here's where they're revealed. And, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if she got married a thousand years ago, I don't know why she's still looking like a bride. But that, you know, that's another reason why I think the wedding is happening here. Okay, It's happening at the end of that millennial kingdom, is my opinion. The wedding day has arrived, and now let's look at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me and said, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is not the same passage we just read, okay? It's just another reference to Jerusalem being the bride of Christ. And it goes through, and it, there's this big, long passage describing the overwhelming brilliance and beauty of this new Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And after that, wedding ceremony is the wedding feast and this is the feast that we look forward to so much as Christians then he showed me the river of the water of life clear as crystal coming down from the throne of God and the lamb in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations there will no longer be any curse And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And then there's a whole section about... You know, whoever does wrong, go ahead and keep doing wrong. If you're filthy, keep being filthy. But let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. And this is just kind of the end of the story where Jesus says, You know what? I've told you everything there is to tell you now. And you have to decide, are you, how are you going to live your life? Are you going to continue to be wicked? If so, go right ahead. Are you, but are you going to choose righteousness and holiness? And if so, fasten your eyes on me. For behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then skip all the way down to the last verse, because this is the invitation to the wedding feast. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty say, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost.